All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to episode three of the Therapy in Action podcast. I am your host, Andrew Bort with... Jaworski. Hey, everyone. So today, I'm going to start off with a quote. Motivation for change must be generated before change can occur. Do you know who said that? I do because you told me, not because I know, but it's Irvin Yalom. <laughs> it is the godfather of group therapy. So on this episode, we are going to discuss the science of motivation by Dr. Ko Marayama and how we can apply his findings to help clinicians build motivation in their patients and tackle some of the difficult tasks and topics they face in group therapy. Because let's face it, many don't want to be there. Some are court ordered. Some are doing it because their husband or wife has given them an ultimatum. And if they are inpatient, most probably aren't feeling very well. Uh, those first few weeks are hell. Yeah, I think this is a really great topic because it's something a lot of therapists and clinicians and counselors struggle with. There is a lot of people that don't want to be there. And even people that maybe ostensibly signed up themselves often have someone behind them pushing, right? It might be a family member, might be an employer, might be a legal court case, right? And we see it all the time in the therapy sessions. You know, there's people that are arms crossed or they're not paying attention or there's feet up, laid back. Like, you know, I don't, I don't need to be here. I'm just going to sit through and get this done. So I'm really excited to be doing this topic today. Right. And we're going to be providing some concrete examples for clinicians of topics that they probably use in groups quite often to help not only build that initial interest and motivation to try, but also to keep it going throughout the session. Unlike the Kathleen Carroll article that we went over on the first show, I'm not going to read through the science of motivation in its entirety though I strongly recommend our listeners do so, but I would like to read the introduction to start us off, and then we can highlight or summarize some of the other sections. You okay with that? Let's do it. All right. Motivation is important in almost every aspect of human behavior. When you make a decision, your choice is certainly influenced by your motivational state. When you study mathematics, your motivation to study mathematics clearly affects the way you learn it. Despite its obvious importance, empirical research on motivation has been segregated into different areas for long years, making it difficult to establish an integrative view on motivation. For example, I studied a number of motivational theories proposed in educational psychology, as my PhD is in educational psychology, but these theories are not connected with motivational theories studied in social psychology or organizational psychology. Furthermore, the way motivation is defined and theorized is fundamentally different in cognitive effective neuroscience. In other fields, such as cognitive psychology, motivation has been normally treated as a nuance factor that needs to be controlled. The times have changed, however. In recent years, researchers have recognized the importance of a more unified and cross-disciplinary approach to study motivation. This multidisciplinary, multi-method pursuit called motivation science is now an emerging field. So that's our intro. I mean, I've always seen the value of cross-disciplinary approaches. I, you know, a fresh set of eyes, especially if a field or a modality has been stagnant for a while. I mean, even what we're doing at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy was born out of a mixture of clinical and educational research. You know, in fact, I think on one of the first podcasts I did, I played this little game called Group Therapy or Classroom that might be helpful for our listeners to have a better understanding if we play that right now. It's very quick. Are you okay with that? Sure. Okay, so I'm going to give you a scenario and listeners, you as well. And you tell me if I'm describing a group therapy setting or a classroom setting. 
You have a room or a space, and in this room, there's a diverse population of people. They've got different background experiences, processing speeds, cultural expectations, and so on. Am I describing a group therapy setting or a classroom? Could be either one. Could be either one. Within this population, some don't want to be there, and occasionally some will lash out. Is that group therapy or a classroom? <laughs> Definitely either one. Definitely either one. Okay. And in charge of this group, there's a facilitator who's the expert in the room. It's their responsibility that the population feels safe, but also they need to challenge them to grow or move towards a goal within a set time frame. Group therapy or classroom? Yeah, see what you're getting at, right? Very comparable. Okay, right. Yeah, I think there's a couple different pieces. It's interesting, but it's right, right? All these different fields have different approaches to motivation and they're not very holistic. And a lot of how we define motivation tends to just be very individually conceptualized in, in a specific field. And so we need a more broad-based definition. And I think some of the common ones we'll probably cover today, right? Our extrinsic versus intrinsic is a big one that's sure. been in research for a long time, especially in the educational circles. And then there's performance approach and performance avoidance. And as we'll probably, maybe we should start off with, I think just adult attention and having motivation because we know that's super important for learning and what we just simplistically refer to as buy-in. Yeah. Um, buy-in, we can't get anything done. So yeah, because that's the starting point. So our, our framework is right. If people don't have attention, they're not going to get anything out of your group therapy. So the first thing that you need is attention and something that we focus on at the Institute is what we call an engagement task. And the entire purpose of an engagement task is to introduce the topic, the skill we're learning in a way that grabs people and holds their attention. And so it's really, really important that we're building this component in. And we actually have as a separate section when we're building sessions, what is your engagement task? Because people are coming in and they're coming in, they're coming off a detox or zoned out. They don't want to be there. They're tired, whatever it is. So in the clinical setting, we have a much bigger responsibility to get attention than you would like in a standard educational setting where, you know, maybe people are a little bit bored, but they're not so actively resistant as a lot of the patient population in group therapy. So engagement tasks are critical. And so we have to find a way to build motivation. And a way to build motivation is to do something interesting that could be videos, it could be sound, it could be humor, it could be a controversial opinion or a counterintuitive fact or an interesting data point, um, but something that pulls their attention and then gets them doing something right away, right? Again, we don't want to be passive because that's the biggest problem. You lose people immediately if they just have to sit there and listen to, to someone else. So what's an activity around that? Even if that activity is as simple as talk to the person next to you about this topic, right? Or give the person next to you your comments on the topic. It's the simplest way to start with anything, but at least it involves them and gets them starting to think about and participate in whatever we're focusing on for that session. Right. And also, I really like statement walks, to be honest. Mm. So when you provide a controversial statement around whatever the topic would be, and so if you think, yes, that is correct, then you go to the left side of the room. If you say, no, it's totally against that right now, then you go to the right side of the room and then start having people talk to each other. You know, why, why did you choose this side? So you start reinforcing their, their belief behind it. Now you take it to the next step, go across the aisle and try to convince somebody to join your point. And so blood pressure will start to raise a little bit, but they're definitely going to be involved in, in what you're talking about.
I'm glad you brought up that specific example around abstinence, because that is probably the next stage to really think about as someone delivering group therapy is, do we have buy-in from the patients in the room? And we'll talk about this more with the article, but you have a difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And the majority of the research, Ryan and Decky did a lot of this decades ago, but if you look at the majority of the research, intrinsic motivation is the motivation that is most likely to have long-term stable effects. So if you're trying to motivate someone externally through rewards, through punishment, by beating them over the head with the information over and over again, it's not sticky. They have to come to that conclusion themselves and find internal motivation. And so the worst thing to do is to shut down the patient and not address their actual beliefs. And so why I like the abstinence example is a lot of people come to therapy setting without wanting or having a goal of abstinence or absolute sobriety. And most therapists make a mistake here by not addressing it or trying to browbeat over it or trying to convince them that they need to be thinking about abstinence and sobriety. That is extrinsic motivation. It's not effective compared to intrinsic. So how do we get the buy-in? We need to focus on what's important to all of the patients in the room. And so maybe your goal as a therapist is to get them to abstinence and sobriety because you truly believe that that's the best outcome for the patients. Absolutely fine, right? You can try to work through that goal, but the only way to do it is more of a motivational interviewing framework where that person has to come to that conclusion themselves. So now your job is not to, again, convince them through Socratic questioning or you know, other methods to try and get them to come to that conclusion today or tomorrow, look at what's important to them. And so maybe what's important to them is rebuilding the relationship with their family. Maybe it's not going to jail for as long as they're currently sentenced to go to jail for. Maybe it's keeping their job. Those are the real actionable goals of the patients in the room. That's what you need to focus on. So if you want to say, okay, well, what's going on with your life that makes it so you might be in jail for the next five years, or you might be getting a divorce, or you might be losing your job. Oh, it's it's my drinking. Okay, so how can we help you keep your job? That's what you focus on. You're saying, how can we help you stop drinking? We're saying, how can we help you keep your job? And then eventually, hopefully, the patient might come to that conclusion. But there's also a lot of other things that we can do for the patients through communication skills, through goal setting, through mindfulness, right? All these other skills that are also going to help the patient keep their job and, you know, not blow up or be able to deal with strong emotions or restructure negative thoughts. And so that's what I think we really want to get across is that buy-in is critical about what the patient wants to get out of it right now, not what the therapist thinks the patient should be getting out of it because that's not intrinsic motivation. Yeah, absolutely correct. We will be touching on a lot more of that uh, towards the end of the article and also providing different examples. We're going to touch on the abstinence one again as well. Okay, so the first subheading here is motivation and learning. Now I'm going to paraphrase this. In the context of studying, for example, Dr. Murayama gives the example of two different types of achievement goals. Okay, one is to master content and the other is to perform well in relation to other people. So this is that competitive spirit. The research says that performance goals do better for short-term memory. So the competition uh, does better for short-term memory and recall. So in the moment, you know, you're charged, adrenaline's going, it's the you stress, that kind of stress that actually increases performance. But those who are studying for mastery, so for their own benefit, right, not just to win right now, but because they want to use this later, they uh, actually performed better long-term. So a week later, they did a memory test and those people performed better. So both parties set out exactly to do what they wanted. Those who wanted to learn for right now did just that. And those who wanted to learn for the long-term also accomplished their goal. 
So the research showed this to be the case both in the controlled setting and follow-up longitudinal study of over 3,000 participants. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think let's give maybe listeners a background there. It makes total sense from a neurological standpoint, right? If we're studying or cramming for a test for tomorrow and all we want to do is pass the test, we're not telling our brain that we need this information long-term, right? We've actually got it set. So say, hey, this is a short-term process. And there's all those elements around it, right? We crammed for it. We didn't study it over the long-term. We're not intrinsically motivated or interested in this inherently. And so we're not engaging in that information or trying to retain it in other places in our life like we might be when we're passionate about something. And so this, again, goes back to why it's so important to have patient buy-in on their goals, because we want them to start to achieve mastery and take some of the skills and the information that we're giving to them in the therapy session and use it in their actual lives outside of just that session or just while they're in treatment. They have to be looking to achieve mastery because they need the motivation to look at this long term. So I think really, really important that we're, we're tying all those pieces together and saying, look, this is important for me because I want to rebuild my relationship or I, I want to keep my job. And so I'm going to focus on all these elements to put it together. And then, and then you focus on it, not just in the session, but you're practicing it at home. You're thinking about it while you're taking a shower because it's important to you. And, you know, you hear all this information of just personal professionalism, focus on your passions. Well, this is why, this is why passion can be so successful because, you know, so unconsciously you're creating constant continuous learning situations and reinforcing neurologically those, those feedback loops. So you get more and more, you get more neural connections and dopamine is actually strongly involved in, in memory and in learning processes and in building neural connections and neural networks. And so that dopamine engages you positively, right? It's a positive reinforcement cycle around this new skill that you're trying to learn and trying to master so that you become good at math or good at recovery, you know, whatever the case may be. Right. And it also reemphasizes the point that it's important that patients believe in what they're doing. They believe in what they're saying. I mean, we use our example of the restructuring negative thoughts, where someone says, I'm a horrible person, you know, restructure, your, restructure that thought. I'm a great person. What, what do you think the motivation for that patient is? You know, they just want to get through the session. And so how do we build that motivation that, hey, you know, restructuring negative thoughts could actually help me. I can be a good person. I picked my kid up from school on time and, uh, you know, took her out for ice cream, or I helped the, my neighbor bring her groceries up the stairs. These real examples that patients can believe in, and that will motivate them to keep going. Yeah, it's huge. And something I wanted to comment on that we had mentioned, but honesty is so important in the therapeutic alliance and the relationship, as well as the culture that we build in a group therapy session. And so if we're forcing people to go along with our objective and they don't have buy-in, we're forcing them to not share about their beliefs because we don't want them talking about their goals not to be abstinent right now because for whatever reason, right? We're building a, a culture of dishonesty and we're building a relationship that's built on dishonesty and a lack of openness. And so it's just obviously the wrong way to take things. So I know some clinicians, you know, like, well, maybe other people will be triggered or there's going to be challenges here. That's life right? And that is exactly what they're going to face in the real world. What we need is honesty, because that is the foundation for anything that we build. And so if you're not having honest discussions, and the, the patients that even, even if you have patients committed to sobriety and patients that aren't, the patients that are committed to sobriety know the other half of the room is not, 
right? Whether it's the chats on the coffee breaks or just reading the body language. So even for the patients that are committed to sobriety, they're feeling the dishonesty in the room and the negative culture that's being built by not having open sharing when it's not allowed or it's shut down for people to talk about what they really think. So I just wanted to really emphasize that, that fact. Yeah. And it's not like the people who are committed to sobriety can empathize with those who aren't. I mean, they've, they've been there, right? Right, right. As we were talking, or I was just talking to a treatment center owner yesterday, you know, he went through treatment 16 times before he finally found recovery himself. So the first 15 times, and he was very honest, like, I, I wasn't really motivated, you know, those first 15 times I was going for different reasons, 16th time I went for myself. And so most of the people in the room probably are not 100% committed, right? There's a lot of ambiguity in, in terms of their own motivations at any given time. All right. So our next section is rewards and motivation. And I'm, I'm wondering how many clinicians use rewards throughout their sessions and what those rewards might look like. But I think most of us can admit, you know, that we are motivated, right, by rewards, whether it's money, respect, whatever we're after. But how do those rewards influence how we behave and what we remember in the short and long term? And do the type of rewards matter, whether they're intrinsic or extrinsic? And they, of course, the answer is yes, they do. Okay, so this is from our article. Participants were randomly assigned to a reward group or control group and engaged in a game task while being scanned inside an fMRI machine. Participants in the reward group were instructed that they would receive performance-based monetary rewards, whereas participants in the control group did not receive such instruction. So they played the game just for fun. After the scanning sessions, we found that participants in the reward group showed less voluntary engagement than those in the control group, indicating that intrinsic motivation for the task was undermined by the introduction of intrinsic reward. Uh, Follow-up brain scan showed that undermining effect was reflected and decreased activation of the stratum, part of the reward network in the brain. So do you think some of our listeners might find this surprising? I know that we've been doing this for so many years that this doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, this is this is the law of diminishing returns, right? And to connect it to SUD or addiction recovery, it's you're building up a tolerance. You get the reward and over time, it's not as exciting anymore. So you want more, you want more, you want more. And oftentimes rewards can, you know, in the long term, take away from the motivation to complete something because it's the right thing to do or because it's good for you or even the maybe the motivations that you initially set out to obtain. So rewards can sometimes be destructive. Yeah, you know, Decky and Ryan, again, you know, going all the way back to the 80s have been finding this for a long time. And it's just incredibly important because that extrinsic reward tends to diminish the intrinsic motivation. And so therefore the long-term stickiness or the long-term success of the motivation. So rewards can be great in the short term. Hey, I'm going to give you two bucks. Um, If you complete this task, people will do it. But then over time, it actually undermines their motivation as you were talking about. So, you know, I I think because a lot of us think in carrot and stick thought processes, right? I mean, that's how jail operates, right? Like if we throw people in jail, if we give them a fine, that will negatively incentivize them not to do the behavior anymore, but that's an extrinsic reward. And that's why there's so much recidivism among people speeding or criminal activity going in and out of jail, because they don't have a personal intrinsic motivation to change their lives. And they're also not given the skills oftentimes to make some of those changes they might want to make. So we, we structure our rewards and punishments in a way that sounds intuitive because we're so used to it. 
and we see it work in the short term, but it doesn't. You know, I mean, even the educational research, like if you look at like Alfie Cohn and things he's done with children, for example, you know, he always gives the example of uh, think about the time that your kid made a big mistake, right? They broke a rule or whatever, and you punish them by having them go sit in their room. He said, you go sit in your room and you don't move, right? And I want you to think about what you did. Now, how many of you, when that happened, went to your room and sat up and thought about what you did and came up like, you know what? I was wrong. That was not right of me to do. You know, instead, what happens is, like, oh, man, I'm going to get them so much. I'm so mad right now, right? And then they come out and they get better at hiding it, right? Because they don't want to get punished, but they're not motivated to change. So mm -hmm. they'll find better ways to hide. So we can see how the extrinsic, the, the stick, right, the negative motivation actually gets the opposite result of what we want to get. And that's exactly what happens in therapy sessions sometimes. People are trying to do all these punishments. They're saying, you're here. You don't want to be here. You know, you need to change this behavior. Um, even really old school 12 stuff, right? Where they used to break people down and try and break people down. That's why it was so ineffective for the majority of patients because extrinsic negative punishment motivation is largely unsuccessful except in very rare instances. Right. And you actually, you brought something up that I think might be beneficial for our listeners, maybe who don't have the background in this necessarily, but a punishment and a reward they're just a consequence, right? So essentially they're the same thing. They're a consequence, one of which is being a positive consequence and one of them, which is a negative consequence. And so people will behave accordingly. And so when I'm thinking about when would it be a good time to use a reward or a punishment and what I'm facilitating a group of people, the only time that I, in my personal experience, thought this would be a good time to use this is when someone was disrupting the progress of everybody else. I will use a short-term strategy temporarily to make sure that the whole of my group is moving in the right direction. Won't use it all the time. And I, I understand that it won't always get the desired effect that I want, but I have to think about the whole versus the individual on occasion, if, if that's who I'm responsible for. Yeah, I want to bring up one more thing here that's really important from the SUD perspective, but behavior change in general it, it takes a long time to build a habit, but sometimes we get confounding confounding variables in there. So if we look at uh, contingency management, so if people are familiar with contingency management, it's a form of SUD treatment or behavior change treatment. It works for SUD or any behavior change where you incentivize them often with a financial reward. It doesn't have to be, but it's usually a financial reward. It's small, it's five bucks, 10 bucks, something like that. So it could be for a positive urine screen or it could be for attendance at a meeting, whatever the situation may be. As you give that consistently over time, there is really, really strong research that shows long-term positive outcomes of that. So why? Because that sounds in, in kind of uh, contradiction to what we're talking about here. Well, there's two pieces. So one, contingency management is delivered over six to 12 months at a minimum. And it takes minimum 30 days to start really building habit change. And so it creates a situation where there is really, really extensive neural rewiring and as we know with addiction in particular, let's just keep it simple, right? But as we get into addiction, your mesolimbic system and the reward system is really what that is, gets reinforced around short-term rewards. We stop thinking about the long-term 
because your prefrontal cortex starts to atrophy a little bit. Those connections atrophy. Again, it's not, it's not permanent, right? It doesn't change forever, but there's a short-term nature to that, assuming that you eventually stop using the drugs or stop using that behavior. So that prefrontal cortex is where all of our long-term planning and our long-term mastery motivation comes from. So as your prefrontal cortex kind of atrophies some of its connections, then you're re-emphasizing the short-term mesolimbic reward system. So what you're doing in contingency management is tapping into that short-term, right? That immediate gratification, as we often call it in the SUD space, and then helping that transition that back to the prefrontal cortex and long-term rewards. So if you can keep that contingency management going long enough and build the habits where the prefrontal cortex starts to reconnect, especially as you stop using, then you're going to be able to build up that part of it. But then the last piece is the confounding variable. So for example, people that are most successful have some kind of intrinsic motivation somewhere to achieve recovery, right? As they understand it. And so the individuals that have no desire to, you're not going to come in and give contingency management and then completely change their entire intrinsic motivation and their belief system. That's not what's happening. What is happening is people that are already having some spark of motivation there to do it. This helps them with that immediate gratification and some of the way that the brain is currently organized to get past that hardest stage, which is, which is the first couple months and really the first year. And it helps them. It, it's an assistant, but they already have the internal motivation. For the people that don't, it's not going to be effective. So the internal motivation component, if they don't have that, needs to come from the behavioral therapy where we're doing our motivational interviewing, finding out what their goals are, connecting our actions and therapy and the conditioning management to their goals, then it's going to become more sticky. But we've got to find those two pieces together, intrinsic motivation with potentially using short-term rewards consistently in the long-term to create sticky behavioral change. Okay, we talked about competition already and you have a heart out. So I'm going to skip ahead to curiosity meta-motivation and motivational cognition. For this section, I decided we should read through a bit more uh, just because I think it'll benefit our listeners. All right, so this is how to create intrinsic motivation right, for their patients. And then we're gonna go into the, the examples that they can use in their sessions. So although intrinsic extendums undoubtedly play an important role in shaping our behavior, humans are endowed with a remarkable capacity to engage in a task without such incentives by generating intrinsic rewards. Forms of motivation triggered by intrinsic rewards are often referred to as intrinsic curiosity or intrinsic motivation. Although intrinsic and extrinsic rewards play a similar role in some situations, some aspects of intrinsic rewards are unique. One such aspect is metamotivation. Metamotivation beliefs refer to our beliefs and understanding of how motivation works. Like recent findings on metacognition, our studies indicate that people often are inaccurate in their beliefs about motivating property of intrinsic rewards. Specifically, when we ask participants to work on a boring task and make a prediction about how interesting the task would be, their prediction was inaccurate. There may be multiple ways to generate intrinsic rewards. One might be through the observational effects. So imagine you have a friend who likes mathematics, even if you did not initially like mathematics, observing your friend, enjoying it repeatedly may create an internal reward, making you feel as that you also like mathematics. We call this motivational cognition. Through behavioral experiments, diary methods, and computational modeling, our lab also explores other channels to which humans generate intrinsic rewards. So if we substitute the math example here with something someone might face in therapy, so like I don't want to get caught up in the debate about whether addiction is a disease or a choice, uh, but if the clinician is running a psychoeducational session on genes, 
uh, a lot of people may feel hopeless. Like I got dealt this bad hand. This is the hand I have. This is who I am. You know, why try? You know, even when we go and observe sessions throughout the country, even if it's not a 12 step, I know I often hear patients start off by saying that they are an addict or an alcoholic, but is this helpful, right? And so by providing examples of people who have had similar struggles, maybe have similar genetic makeups, but have successfully overcome their active addiction and lead meaningful lives, which is what, up to 75% of people? Yeah, most people recover, yeah. Yeah, at 75% or higher. Uh, I forgot what the actual stats were. I, if if our readers haven't, I recommend reading this book by Dr. Gene Heyman, which is uh, Addiction and Disorder of Choice, which is does not make an argument either way. It provides both sides uh, of it, but it, it does eloquently explain the real data of what we have. And it's uh, very, very helpful. But by providing examples of people who found recovery, just like seeing that friend enjoy mathematics, you can help build that motivation, like focus on the positive recovery is possible. And, you know, through elicitation techniques, like, do you know anybody who struggled that's recovered, right? And they have. And so there's hope for all of us in this room, you know, let them again, come to that conclusion on their own, but reinforce that with positive video testimonials, right? And that you can help build that motivation that, hey, you know, I can do this. It's not as hopeless as I might think. Yeah, they have to believe that hope is possible, right? It's a core component to recovery. If they don't believe that they can achieve it, then they're not going to work towards it. And I think maybe to help listeners again, think about it, like we use that mathematics example. It's not enough that they're seeing other people. Like why, why would, if you saw a friend that was good at mathematics and succeeding there, why might that be internally motivating? It's because of your pre-existing belief systems and values. I want to be like my friend or I, maybe I want to outcompete my friend. It's a personal goal of mine to, you know, be better than other people, right? Maybe, maybe it's my sister and I just, oh man, I really want to be better than my sister at this, you know, but that's in a pre-existing internal belief system or value that's built up through life experience and other factors. And so that's why that that's potentially internally motivating, right? It's not just because they saw someone. So if you have some random person that's good at math, you're not going to be like, oh, I, I wish I was good at math. Uh, but if you have a friend or someone's close and important to you, or if there's a value system in place where you really want to compete against that person or whatever the situation is, then there's an internal motivation there to change. So I want to run through just a couple more examples before we wrap up. I know you went through this on our first episode, but in case our listeners didn't hear it, can you give us the example that you ran for I statements? So one example I often give with I statements is Again, a lot of people don't want to be there potentially for recovery or abstinence. And so many therapists will frame my statements as a way to help deal with communication skills and then help them in their recovery. Fine. Some people do want to be there for that. But everyone in the room most likely has relationships they want to be better, right? That's almost human universal is there are relationships we have in life, whether it's with family or whether it's with a significant other or even with our boss and coworkers that we want to be better. And so... I statements allow us to be assertive in our communication, but do it in a way that's not positive, that's not, that's positive, that's not blaming the other side, um, that doesn't use negative language, that gets other people's defenses up. So I'll always ask, I say, do you have any relationships in your life, you know, family, significant others, that you would like to be better? And everyone always says yes. I said, great. Well, would you like today to learn some techniques where I can help you build stronger relationships there? And again, everyone's like, yes. And then we go into it. Great. Okay. And, you know, just to follow up on that, 
you know, an example that I can use is if you want to get patients to motivated to build healthier routines, you can, you know, ask them again, a, a universal question. Does your life ever feel kind of out of control or over, overly stressful, like uh, just unmanageable and, you know, frustration, anxiety? Have you had those feelings before? I mean, they're not fun. I mean, everybody has, right? So we're going to get a resounding yes. Say, well, you know, there's a tool that maybe not, won't fix it, but it really helps. I mean, it really helped me. So two years ago, uh, in the great Texas freeze of 2021, where we lost power for a week, my pipes exploded. And, you know, my house was almost ruined. And it was an incredibly stressful situation. And that's something that was just out of my control. Luckily, I had been using this tool so I could keep the other pieces of my life together. You know, and whether you want to share part of your personal life or not, that's that's up to you. But I, I do believe that in this case, it'll help the, the patients understand that, oh, you know, well, he's using it and it helped him. So, you know, maybe I'm more willing to try, you know, just uh, gives them a little bit more willingness, right? And so uh, is that something you'd be willing to do? You know, if they say, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, today we're going to look at, you know, building healthy routines and kind of structuring your day out, not how that might look, right? And then here we are off to the races. Yeah, it's a great example because actually, I was just reading a research article. I wish I could remember who wrote it. Uh, but it was yesterday, and it was all about the difference between labeling and then problematizing specific elements of one life. Mm -hmm. And you'll find this significantly common or very common with patients. They don't think about themselves as I'm an addict or I have depression or I have anxiety. And that can actually be off-putting because people don't want to label themselves. What they will do is say, I'm having a problem in my relationship because of my drinking. I lost my job because of my drug use. I am in this court situation because I can't control the amount I drink when I go out to bars. They think very specifically and concrete about their lives and the problems that they're having rather than a global issue. And so that's where you should start. Whether or not you believe that the patient should be thinking globally about the issues that they have, you have to start with the individual specific instances and how they think about their own problems. And also, again, if you do it that way, they're less like they're more likely to engage in treatment because they don't feel like you're judging them. They don't feel like you're labeling them. You're, they feel like you're helping them with a problem that they believe that they have. Okay. And uh, finally, I see we're kind of running out of time here. Uh, let's look at the scenario. A patient might be opposed to abstinence. Okay. We're going to circle back to the beginning. So all of us are different, right? We might share some common struggles, but we have different backgrounds and life goals. Does that sound about right? You know, everyone, of course, agree. That's a universal. So one thing we probably do share is it makes us feel good when people come to us for advice. You know, I know it makes me feel good when people ask my opinion and really listen. What about you? Yeah, okay. Well, right now, we are becoming more aware of recovery, coping strategies, and confronting some challenging emotions that we face, you know, to improve our lives. There are out there who have already found recovery. Others are currently struggling, and maybe they even haven't even asked for help yet. And if someone like this came to you for advice, what might you say? So maybe they know that you needed help or you went into treatment. You're more knowledgeable about the subject than they are. And they come to you for help. Even if you don't want abstinence as your goal, what would you tell them to help them? And now you have them at least contemplating it. They're the expert now. People like to feel that way. And so now they're going to engage with the task and perhaps write out a plan. Maybe they won't use it, but at least it's on their mind. It's such a smart approach because then you're not getting into the whole defense mechanisms of people about their own beliefs or, you know, what you're maybe trying to accomplish from an abstinence standpoint. They, oh, I want to help someone else. And then they start to think about why they might want to stop using and ways to do it. 
and then that might end up triggering, you know, thoughts and reflections on their own situation. Yep. Well, I was going to say, let's continue with this and talk about how to maintain motivation, but maybe we can save that for a later episode. Let's wrap it up. And then why don't we have listeners join us next time as we continue and hopefully give a lot more additional advice and different tips and strategies. And we hope that everyone's getting a lot of information out of this and things that help them. We would love to hear from you. If you've used these things or changed your approach based on some of the uh, things that you've heard in our podcast here, we'd very much love to hear from you. And we're always happy to share additional strategies and tips too. If you say, hey, I tried this. This is what happened. Didn't quite go the way I thought it would. What next? Or this went really well. And we'd just love to hear the, the positive feedback. Yeah, we always love troubleshooting problems. One of the principles of adult learning, real life problem solving. <laughs> So thank you so much. You can find us on LinkedIn. We're both very active and always happy to connect or through our website, grouptherapycertification.com, or you can email us at certification at grouptherapycertification.com. Thank you so much, everyone. See ya.